0: means that was offered to ideas. And we are reminded that they were in a sense divided along two different groups. They were in a sense two parties. There were those who, who said, well, it doesn't matter. You can eat it. And there were those who said it's still a problem. You shouldn't eat it. There were those who were convinced that yes, we are free. We have this freedom in Christ to eat anything. And we they also said, no, we shouldn't eat it. And this was causing friction in the church. And in chapter 8, we were reminded that the real problem here was not actually the mix, was one of pride. And their Paul was showing them that the solution to the disputes is for them to come to themselves and love one another. And that principle was applied to various subjects and issues that can divide us as Christians, and here in chapter 10, of course, is still addressing that very issue. Here he's focusing on the subject of idolatry, because aside the fact that some of the meats were sold in the market during the sacrifice in the temples, there were sort of tables available where people would sit down and they would eat and feast and eat some of this meat that was offered to the idols. And the Corinthians, the ones who were convinced that they should eat, who thought that they were free to eat this meat, were not only saying that they were free to eat the meat that was offered or that was sold in the market, but they could also participate in a sense in the service that was going on in the temple. Because of their freedom of Christ, they thought, well, it doesn't really matter. You can partake in this. And in verse 14, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from my daughter. And we know that when the Bible has the word therefore in the verse, the very first rule is to stop and take a look at what came or what comes before you. And last time we reminded ourselves that there was a temptation that Paul was warning them to avoid. He had used the examples of the Israelites. They have pointed out that the Israelites were in the wilderness had like giving themselves to idol worship, to sexual immorality, to grumbling, to testing Christ, and to all of these things. And Paul was speaking to the Corinthians saying, don't be like these people. And here the particular sin that he's emphasizing is idolatry. Therefore, my beloved says, flee from idolatry. Because the temptation for them was not just sexual immorality or grumbling. The real temptation that they were facing there was to take part in this idol worship. And Paul was saying, Don't compromise your faith. Flee from it. Run away from it. Because there was, again, that temptation of participating, of taking part in this worship service. So as we Go through these verses from 14 down to verse 1 of chapter 11. I type the sermon Free to Glorify God. Because as we scan as we through the verse and speaking to the children there is that very big verse there that screams to us. And Paul says whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And he's addressing the Corinthians telling them, yes, you are free. But you must realize that in your freedom, your freedom must be controlled by what you have been called to do, to glorify God. And this very first word, this very word, three, if, you, if you remember, uh, through our series, the first time we encountered was the chapter 6, where Paul had also commanded the Corinthians to do what, to please sexual immorality. And here the command is for them to run away from it, not to flesh into you, not to joke with it, because of the danger that lies in it. He goes on in the very first section in verse 19 and 20, saying, yes, yeah, it as much as these idols are nothing. But yet yeah, there is something that is going on here. Yeah, there is something deeper. And we shall see what that is. You know, we can think, as we reminded ourselves last Sunday, that we are not idol worshippers because There are no images around us that we bow down to. But yet, there is still that danger of idolatry. The Bible reminds us that idol worship is not just one that is giving yourself to to bowing down before images, but it is anything that you put first, anything that you give your heart to, anything that sort of governs your life which is you not know, the living and true God. And because of that danger, we have to remind ourselves that there is still that temptation for us to give ourselves to our brother. So the first point here is to avoid the danger of compromise. Because what we stand through this very verses ber- ber- in fourteen to twenty two, which see the world participates participation about five times in verse 16, the word appears two times, participation in verse 17, eight, in 18, participants. In 20, we see again, participants. And Paul is pointing out to them that since they have been saved, it's using two illustrations here, since they have been saved, That there is, in a sense, a fellowship of sharing in who Christ is. And because of that, they shouldn't take part in this very worship and service of idols. It's the same word that John uses in 1 John chapter 1 when he talks about the fellowship that we have with the Father through Jesus Christ. And here Paul uses two illustrations to drive up this point. The first is the Lord's Supper. In verse 16, he says, The cup of blessing I will bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that will break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You see, when believers gather around the Lord's table, what they are remembering, what they are sharing, what we share, it is something that really happened The death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Where his body was broken and his blood was shed. So that when believers, those who are trusting in Jesus, gather together around the Lord's table, they are participating, they are sharing in that very act. The symbol of the table is one that points to what Christ has done for us on the cross. And Paul is saying, you are people who share in the Lord's name. You participate in it. You share in his blood and the bread. You share in it as one body. Verse 17. We who are one body, we are all partake in the one bread. The badly and the issue that do the Lord suffer in a different way. In a sense, each person breaks from the bread. And they share in it collectively. And Paul is saying, when you gather around the Lord's table, this is what you, you, you are participating in. What the Lord Jesus did. That is what the Lord's supper points out. But secondly, He uses the example, the illustration of the Jewish sacrifice at the altar. So when um, the, the Jews would bring their sacrifice and, and the priests would offer it at the table. The, the participants share in that very act. They take part in that very sacrifice that goes on here at the altar. And Paul is saying when you look at this, when you look at the Lord's table, when you look at the sacrifice at, at the altar, you realise that it is not just those who are offering the sacrifices, but everyone who is gathered there, they are participating in something, they are sharing in something. And therefore, when you are with pagans, when you are offering sacrifices to their idols, inasmuch as these idols are nothing, yet what they are doing, they are sharing something, and thing that they are sharing is a sacrifice to demons. In verse 20, he says, "No." I do not imply that pagans offer their sacrifices to God or to demons. And he says that you do not want you to be participants with demons. You go to Romans chapter 1 where Paul deals with the subject of idolatry and he reminds the Romans that the story is that God made everything in them. Or what, has, what have people done? They are sort of turned their backs on God. And because there is that very holy they are hard to worship. People around the world bring themselves to worship of idols. And they stand in enmity with God. And the demons are those who are falling angels, who are the arch enemies of God. So that ideology at called core, his people standing and sided with demons. And the Corinthians were in the danger of sharing in the Lord's table and saying, yes, we are Christians. But on the other hand, we can still share at the table of demons. We can say, yes, we are believers. But we can also stand with those who are enemies God. And that is the danger, that is the temptation that you are about to fall into. That is the temptation that you are supposed to freedom and rights. It's leading them to. It says you cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's in life that there are things that are mutually exclusive, there are things that you cannot meet together. You cannot mix water and oil, they are incompatible, and you cannot mix the worship of of God, of Christ, with the worship of demons, of descendants, and as Jesus puts it, no man can serve two masters. you can either hate one and love the other, else you can hold on to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mama. You cannot mix them and, and say, well, on Sunday I gather together yes, I worship with God's people. From Monday to Saturday I stand with the devil. And that is the danger that we believe our today. The danger of coming together on the Lord's day and saying, well, We have gathered to worship God. We've gathered to participate and share with one another and fellowship. But all that danger of the week, we stand in the world. That is the danger that is facing the church around the world today. The danger of compromising. When the Bible says, this is what God says, yet we want to on the other hand, appease and you know, please the world. So what the Bible says that that God has defined marriage as a union between a man and a woman. There are people who will come out and say they are ministers of the gospel but somehow, just to appease the world they will bless sensitive unions. When the Bible says that all are falling short of the glory of God, that the only way to God is through Christ, we want to offend that. But when we are in the Lord, we want to say, well, it doesn't matter. We all follow the worship of the same God. Let's all be nice to one another. When you say that you are a Christian, when you are the mission of unbelievers, the very pressure to compromise your faith, to say in your heart, Yes, I am a believer. But yes, I can still heal. And stand in those who oppose God, who are enemies of God. And Paul says, I speak to you, you speak, as sensible people. Judge for yourself. You no, know, here he's not saying, what well, you know, you guys are smart. Sort this thing out for yourself. Within the previous verses, especially in chapter 2, Paul had pointed out that there are two groups of people actually in the world: yeah. the natural and the spiritual people. And we all come into this world like, as natural people. And yet, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, he awakens us to see our sin, to share, to participate in what he has done, to see the truth in who we are, to see the truth in who you are, to see the truth that all that is in the world is what is opposed to God. And one will confess and say that we are with Christ but yet go into the world and stand with the world. then we are in the danger of compromising our faith. It's true that there is a prejudice around us. But friends, Paul say, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? God's love is a jealous love. It's like man who is married to his wife and or the woman who is married to a man, and somehow the wife begins to go after another man, or the man begins to go after another wife. There is in a sense that holy jealousy. It shouldn't be happening. And for us as believers, upon whom God has showered his love upon us, if we are with the things of the world and giving it to it, we are in the danger of provoking the Lord to jealous. And it is the right word. Because God's love is a perfect love. Because I awakens the jealousy of the Lord. See, he keeps a love that is so intense for the object of his love and his angry with something dressing it. We cannot have it both ways. We cannot have the space and the table of the Lord, and the table of being. You cannot be a Christian and compromise on your moral standards just to please people. Mm. You cannot be a Christian and compromise on personal convictions just to make people around you happy. In that sense, they have become your idols, they have become your God. The danger of compromising the last question, they're we stronger than him. When Paul uses the examples of the Israelites, he reminds them, he reminds the Corinthians of what happened to them in the wilderness, that they fell, the that they the destroyed. See, we are not stronger than God. The idols that you worship are not stronger than God. The people that you painted, Deserve your devotion. We are not stronger than like God. No one gets. And that is why He is the one, He alone deserves our ultimate worship. And secondly, from verse 23, three, Paul comes back fully to the subject of eating meat and drink. As I said in the introduction, some of the wheat that was sacrificed was sold in the market, and the question for this Corinthians was, should we eat this? And there were those who were convinced whether to eat it, to eat it rather. There were those who said they were not going to eat it, they were the strong and they were the weak. Therefore, I was going to repeat the slogan, all things are lawful. And some of this Corinthians we were probably Jews and we were given to all the direct laws and regulations that the Old Testament had prescribed. And when they had come to Christ, they realized that we were not, it wasn't necessary to keep some of those laws in order to be part of God's family. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful for us. See, watching TV the be right, but watching TV might not be helpful, especially when you have an exam tomorrow. Drinking might be helpful, but the tenth glass might not be helpful. All things are love, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. In verse 8 it's saw in chapter 8 in verse 1 there Paul and reminded them that what builds up is love but not as tears down. And here he's bringing them back to that very subject reminding them that yes, you might be free to do whatever you want but remind them that your freedom doesn't mean that you're building up one another.
1: Because if you're exercising your freedom at the expense of
0: love, you're tearing at one another. And Paul comes back to what I call the way of love. And here there are sort of two instances where Paul says you're free to eat this meat. One, in verse twenty five, he says whatever is sold in the market, in the meat market, eat without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In verse 27, the other example that, or the other instance where you are free to eat, it says if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, and are disposed to eat, eat whatever is serve before you, without raising a question, on the ground of conscience. So for these two instances, Paul says, if an unbeliever invites you, you're free to go and eat, and when you are there, don't ask, you know, don't bother to ask, Whatever it means was offered in sacrifice. There's no point raising a question of conscience. And when you go to the market to buy, don't ask those who are selling, does this come from the temple? He says, no, there's no point. There's, there's no reason why you should go around asking that. And why? In verse 26, Paul ties his argument to God's word. He says, For the earth is the Lord, and the fullness the yeah, and he's reminded them that these idols to whom they things you are offered to, they are not God, they are not deity, they are nothing, they are empty. And so when you go to the market and buy, don't bother yourself. Because everything we have has been given to us by God. There is one God, it is He who alone has made all those things. Therefore we are free, he says, to eat it. But in 28 he says, If someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. So we have a word here, conscience screaming at us. And Paul has, because you know, there are two choices that he wants us to consider you're free to eat, you're free to abstain. There are those two freedoms, you are free to eat, you are free to abstain. And these are two good choices. When you eat, no problem. If you choose to abstain, no problem. The weak says they want to abstain, the strong says they want to eat. These are two good choices. This is not a choice between grumbling and not grumbling. This is not a choice between sexual immorality and sexually cured. This is not a choice between idolatry of participating in the temple worship and not. These are two choices that are good. When you eat, if you want to eat this meat or fat or sold in the market, no problem. If you want to abstain, no problem. But what happens? The problem is that because one is convinced that he should eat this, and the other is convinced that he shouldn't. The one wants the other to bow to his own conscience. And the other wants him also to bow to his own conscience. And when one sees the other eating the meat sacrifices, the idols, he says, You really a Christian. When the other Six, the other one abstaining, since Six, oh come on, grow up. That is the real problem that divides me. The whole assembly. That shouldn't be the word divides me. Because you should be seeking the good. Not your own good, but the good of your neighbor. But so if you're convinced that you should eat, there are times for the sake of the other person, you shouldn't eat. No problem. Abstain. And the conscience is that very thing that God has given us to us to determine what is right or wrong. And our consciences are not always perfect because we're sinned. They don't always lead us to do what is right. But when you're convinced about something and you're trying to pressure another person to to do what you're convinced about, you want to bind the conscience of another believer to yourself. And when you're convinced that as a Christian you're free to eat pork, and you see another one who is saying, well, I'm not convinced to eat it. And then, when you're gathered together, you're trying to force him to eat it. Or else? Come oh on, grow up, he says. Or when you are a believer who you love watching football, and the other one doesn't. But for the guys, you, you need to have that conversation on a different day. I just can't understand why some, some men don't watch football. But your faith doesn't stand on whether one watches from or not. And some of the examples that we we're given in that chapter 8, one is convinced that there is nothing wrong with going to see the cinema, and the other sees a big problem in it. And you look at the one who goes as, he's not a Christian. And the one who goes, looks at the other one and says, come on, grow up. See, we are not buying one another to our consciences but to God's word, and here Paul commends mutual love because partaking and abstaining are good good acts when they are done in the honor of the Lord and they are good precisely because they honor God again this is not a choice you see Living sin, a simple life, and avoiding a simple life. God has given us those things to enjoy, and each and every one of us would like different things. There's some who love food, there are those who love pork, there are those sisters who, I know in Nigeria, this is a big deal, wearing of trousers. TV, there are those who would say, oh, as a Christian, you shouldn't have a TV at home. That is the devil's box. We're going to say cinema, we're entitled to drinking, and all of these things. And then we judge one another on these externalities. Because we're convinced in ourselves that this thing isn't good for me. Yeah, there are times when it is not right. If your football team keeps you from coming to church on a Sunday then you've got your priorities wrong. If your dressing becomes indecent, you've got your priorities wrong. And each and every one of those things, things that people have to be convinced about. And you are not at liberty to bind people to your conscience, but we are to bind one another to you. To God's word. That's where our conscience is, should be That's where Paul attires uh, to God's word. He says the earth is the Lord in the fullness there. Okay. So you not only your conscience. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, or thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks. You see, there are things that we have to learn and unlearn. And that is why we always have to come to God's word And really wrestle and struggle with some of those things. But when you are convinced of something, there's really no pushing it or forcing it on the other person. But if it's something that is clearly simple, then you have a responsibility to encourage that person to free from it. So once again, these are two good choices: the free to eat, Paul says, the free to abstain. (coughs) But yet, you know, it goes on in verse three. It's already verse thirty-one. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do it to the glory of God you see this is this should be our supreme motivation this should be what motivates us that in everything we do here for them the immediate application is in eating eat and drinking but Paul asks whatever you do if you are studying, if you're walking anything you're giving your hands to, anything you're doing rising up, walking bathing Marry, entertain yourself in every human activity that you do. Do it to the glory of God. And this very word glory can be very difficult as I was trying to explain to the children, to, ex- to explain it. What exactly is the glory of God? The word there refers to God's honor and dignity. Because the Bible tells us and reminds us that each and every one of us, we are made by God. We are made in His image. And yes, the whole world, the earth, the heavens and the earth proclaim the glory of God. But as human beings, there is a way in which we are to specially reflect the glory of God. That we have been made in His image. We have been made by Him. And we know that sin has murdered very image of God in us. But as Christians, this Corinthians, there are people who have been redeemed. There are people who have been made alive. There are people who have come to know this God. And so Paul is saying, you have to direct everything you do in reverence and honor of this God who has made you, who has saved you. Because when we glorify God, when we are living, According to his commands, we are doing right. And when we don't, when we are doing wrong, we are not glorifying him. Paul is motivated by that desire to glorify God. So that in everything that we are doing, it shouldn't be to glorify ourselves. I was thinking of an illustration of this, and I don't have anything against selfies, please. Um, it's just an illustration. So don't assume that I'm against selfies. But when we take selfies, it's a if we're saying, you know, look at me. It's an illustration, please. And our lives can be like that. That we are pointing to ourselves. That. When we are motivated to succeed, the desire is so that people will look at me and say, Yes, I have accomplished something. So that when you are in school, your desire to be top of the class is so that people will look at you and say, Oh, what a brilliant boy, what a brilliant girl. Yes, you should be motivated to succeed in class in all that you do. But even if you are not top of the class, it doesn't matter because you are doing it to the glory of God. And that is what should motivation us. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, should be, to be pointing to God. Paul is motivated by the desire, by that supreme desire, to glorify God. And secondly, he's motivated by the desire for people to be saved. In thirty-two and thirty-three, at the end of thirty-three, it says that many may be saved. In chapter nine, Paul has given the instance, the example of how he has given up his rights, how he doesn't, you know, use his rights to his own advantage. It says that he not seek my own advantage, the desire, the, the advantage, the rights that he has in sharing the gospel, and any monetary gain from it. He has given that up. That is not what motivates him. He doesn't have... His, his rights are not what motivates him, Paul says. He has given all of this up so that many may be saved. And his desire is not to cause offence to people, whether to Jews or Greeks or to the Church of God, he says. He's not seeking to go around, you know, getting people angry. He's not going around, you know, showing those who do not love tattoos his tattoos. Say you know, see, if you don't have a tattoo, you're not a good Christian. He's not going around trying to force those who, who believe that if you don't drink alcohol, he's not going around trying to force them to drink. He's not going around trying to force people to come along to him, with him to the cinema if they don't want to. That's not what motivates him. He's motivated by the desire to glorify God and to see people saved. And so we have to avoid seeing our own advantage. Just as Paul says in verse 24, let no one see his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And this is exactly what Jesus did for us. And the last verse, there, he did all of me as I am of Christ. When Paul gives up his rights, in a sense, he's pointing to what Christ did. What did Christ do for us? Philippians 2 gives us that very illustration of what Christ did. That Christ had all these rights in heaven. Yet he was ready to step down for our sake. To humble himself. And die on the cross. To be a servant of all. To give his life for all. To offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins that is exactly what Christ did and this is what Paul is modeling in the gospel Paul is not saying be mediator of me as I am of Christ because I'm the best example of all he's not saying you know I'm a perfect person no he's saying I am walking I am doing exactly what Christ did just as Christ didn't seek his own advantage just as Christ didn't hold on to his own rights Christ gave up those rights in sins, sense and took up the form of a servant so that each and every one of us who believe in him may be saved. Are we motivated by that very thing that motivated Christ and that motivated Paul? Are we motivated by that very desire for people to be saved? Are we motivated by that supreme desire to glorify God? The story of the man. I think anyone here has heard his name, Eric Liddell. He was a Scottish athlete and runner. And there was one thing that he did all through his career. he refused to run on Sundays. That was his own conviction. He had the opportunity to run for his country, Scotland, and final out 100 meters in the Olympic game. But because it was on a Sunday, he said he was not going to participate. That was his conviction. And for him, he said, his running was to glorify God. His running was to glorify God. And when he, he finished, when he, he retired from sprinting, he went to China, where he became a missionary. He was motivated by the supreme desire to put God back on what he did. And he was motivated by the desire to see the people of China come to know God. So if we are not motivated by that, then it doesn't really matter what we do. Nothing else gives significance to all we do on earth. Because nothing else gives significance to you if, as the word says, you are just dust and nothing more. Nothing else gives significance to your studies. Nothing else gives significance to your work. Nothing else gives significance to your marriage. Nothing else gives significance to your relationship if you are not motivated to glorify us. That is why we should run from idolatry. That is why we should seek to love one another. That is why we should avoid the pressure of giving into the pressure of compromising. Because the only way we can bring glory to God is if we walk in the way of Christ. The only way we can bring glory to God is in all that we do and say to point people to God. See, the world today is really empty. The world today has no answers. There's no other place to go, and I'm avoiding the temptation of. Reminding my dear Nigerians who were so optimistic about the election and say, oh, this is what is finally going to bring answers and rescue to us. But we are seeing how it's all been taken over by the wickedness of man. What is going to change our world? What is going to change people's hearts? What is going to stop people from hating one another? What is going to stop people? And killing one another. It's only when people come to see the scene and believe the gospel and are saved. But whatever they do it wouldn't be about themselves but for God. Are you motivated by that? By something else?